Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, I can say that and this smile comes across my face. I am excited for the book of Ephesians, like like more excited than usual excited. Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Ephesians and we're calling this series Ephesians, Who We Are, How We Live. We're calling that this, this series that title because it comes straight out of the book. The book of Ephesians is comprised of six chapters, and the first three are all about who we are, what God has done for us, and then the last three chapters are the ethical implications out of that. The last three chapters tell us because of what God has done, this is what we ought to do, and we're going to be seeing that as we study this book together. But today, as we begin this series, we're going to do something just a little bit different. Typically, a sermon is built around a few verses, maybe a chapter of the Bible, and we'll take that and we'll really dig deep and and dig into that. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the entire book. My goal as we do this is that we'll be able to take hold of the message of this book because this message is glorious. I love this book. I I love this book. I've been reading this book over and over and over again over the last few weeks, 15, 20 times, easily, straight through. And I want you to love this book. And one of the best ways that I can think of to help you to love this book is to give you a taste of the whole thing. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I think I've told some of you before that I am the primary cook in my family, right? Like, I do most of the cooking. Tama does some, but I do most of it. And, and there are a few dishes out there that I am particularly good at. My daughters would probably tell you that one of my best dishes is chicken tikka masala. Anybody ever heard of tikka masala or ever had tikka masala? It's, there's like one person here. Sophie, you've tasted it, right? Like, it's good, right? So, so tikka masala, if you've never had it, it's, it's an Indian curry dish. You serve it over jasmine rice. And what makes tikka masala so good is its rich blend of spices and ingredients. The base of the curry is made up of crushed tomatoes and tomato paste and garlic and grated ginger. And then either heavy cream or I like to use coconut milk. It adds this creamy sweetness to it that's so good. But, but then it's seasoned with cumin and coriander and cardamom and black pepper and cayenne pepper and smoked, smoked paprika and garam masala and kosher salt. Now, each of these ingredients in tikka masalaka is critical to the overall dish. And each one of these ingredients has a very distinct flavor. By themselves, many of them are delicious But when you put them all together and you let them stew on the stove over a a period of time, there's this like magic that happens. As those flavors are all together in the pot and they're stewing and simmering together, they start to infuse each other. And and before you know it, you get this magic that we call tikka masala. Now, if I want you to love tikka masala, I am not going to give you just a taste of, say, the tomatoes. 
I'm not going to have you take a sip of coconut milk. I'm not going to let you sample the cardamom or the garam masala. No, if I want you to love tikka masala, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a spoonful of the finished curry, and I'm going to have you taste that curry. I'm going to have you taste that finished dish. And we're going to do the same thing today with Ephesians. I, I want you to have a taste of the book of Ephesians so that when we come back starting next week, you will love this book. And you'll be prepared to start tasting all of the various ingredients that make this letter to the church at Ephesus so good, so delicious. So we're going to dive in to just the first two verses today, and then we're going to ask the Lord to guide us. And then as we do that, we're going to move forward through the whole book, noting some of the major themes of the book. And as we do that, I'm hoping that you'll begin to recognize that the central message of the book of Ephesians is that our identity in Christ determines how we live. That is the central message of the book of Ephesians. How our identity in Christ determines how we live. And so today, that's going to be our big idea. That's our main takeaway today. Our identity in Christ determines how we live. So let me show you that as we dive in. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, these two verses is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into the book of Ephesians today, as we study this book over the next 13 or 14 weeks, God, I ask that you would guide us, that you would speak to us. God, I ask that as we, as we study and taste each chapter, each verse of this book together, I, I ask that you would help us to see how glorious it is, how the good news that we find in Ephesians changes who we are as a people. God, speak to us today. Let us hear from you in a powerful way that will impact our lives moving forward, that we will be a people who make much of your name that we will be a people who sing daily as we sang this morning, great are you, Lord. God, we are thankful for your word and how it is preserved for us. And so we ask that you would help us to see who we are, how what you've done shapes who we are, and how what you've done leads us to live for you every single day. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Your identity matters. You know that, right? Who you are, how you see yourself, how others see you, it matters. And I don't think I need to tell you this for you to know that that's true. The significance of our identity can be seen in just about every aspect of the world we live in today. We are defined by our identity. I mean, think about it. When you meet somebody for the first time, after you introduce yourself, after they introduce themselves and you learn each other's names, what are the first questions you ask them? What do you do? Where do you live? Where are you from? 
Why do we ask those questions? We ask those questions because they tell us a little bit more about who that person really is. They help us to understand that person's identity. Because identity is more than just your name. Identity is your whole personhood. Identity incorporates everything about you. So like for me, I'm Josh Heisler. I'm from Tacoma, Washington. I'm a 23-year veteran of the United States Navy, a graduate of the University of Washington and Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm the pastor of the Point Church in Alberta, a board member of the Lillian Volunteer Fire Department, the father of Katie and Kylie, the husband of Tama, a farmer of goats and chickens. That's who I am, right? That's my identity. Our identity incorporates everything about us. And we see that even in the introduction to this book. Right here in these first two verses. But before we get to that, some quick background is always going to be helpful for us as we're opening up a new book of the Bible. Understanding where it came from, who wrote it, helps us. So some background. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul most likely while he was in prison in Rome sometime in the early 60s AD. It's widely believed, by the way, that this letter was a circular letter. And what that means is that this letter was written to the church in Ephesus, but it was also intended to be carried to other churches around the region of Asia Minor and shared with those churches as well. This letter was written to Gentile Christians. Paul is writing to help show them what's involved in their recent commitment to come and follow Jesus. And I love that because we share some common connections with the Ephesians that this letter was written to. After all, we too are Gentile Christians, most of us. We too live in a society that is overwhelmingly not Christian. And we too need to understand what is involved in our commitment to follow Jesus. This letter that was written to Christians in Ephesus in the early 60s AD is also a letter that was written to us here in Alberta, Alabama in 2022. So as we read this letter, it's right for us to read this as if it is addressed to us. And that brings us back to identity. Right there in verse 1, the letter begins with the identity of the author. It, it begins with the identity of Paul. And I want you to look at how Paul identifies himself. He says, he, he begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, we might be tempted to want to just pass that over. This is just the introduction to the letter. It, it would be like saying, taking up a letter from my wife that says, dear Josh, I love you. Like, that's normal, right? We, we're tempted to pass over this, but we shouldn't. Paul's calling himself an apostle. Now, the word apostle means messenger. It means envoy. So when Paul calls himself an apostle, what he's saying is he's telling us that he is a messenger. He's an envoy of someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. Paul's words, his message, they are coming from Jesus. They're not just his words. Paul was commissioned by the risen Lord, by Jesus himself, to be his messenger. So what we're reading here isn't just a word from Paul, it's a word from the Lord Jesus. And this word is addressed to the saints 
who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that word saints there, we see that in the English and, and we start to get kind of wrapped up in our minds. We start thinking about like the super Christians that were made famous by the Roman Catholic Church, right? Like St. Patrick, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Teresa. We start thinking of this level of Christians that have somehow reached this higher plane that we can only hope to maybe kind of get close to but never actually arrive. But if that's how we're reading this, then we're reading this wrong. The word that's translated saints here simply means those that are de dedicated to God. Those are worthy of God. Those which are holy unto God. And in the 61 times that that word is used in the New Testament, every single time, every single time it's used, it's talking about ordinary Christians, ordinary followers of Jesus like you or me, or the collected group of ordinary Christians that we would call the church. This letter is addressed to everyday Christians who are faithful in Christ Jesus and are living in Ephesus. But remember, I told you that this is a circular letter, which means that this letter is meant to be shared with other churches, which means that this letter is meant to be shared with us. In fact, in many of the earliest manuscripts, the words in Ephesus are absent. This is a circular letter that was addressed to everyday Christians. It was addressed to you and me, which means that what follows is for you and me. This is a letter for us. So as Paul begins writing, he identifies who he is. He identifies who he's writing to, and then he gives a fairly standard grace and peace wish, which we see in almost all of his letters there in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the letter begins in earnest. And in the main message of this letter is that our identity in Christ determines how we live. That's the main thrust of this letter, but where does our identity in Christ come from? The answer is found in chapters one through three. In the first half of this book, we're gonna see that our identity comes from what God has done. In chapter one, we're going to see that God chose to pour out his grace on us. Grace is the major theme of the first half of this book. And since that's the case, we need to take a moment to understand what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God's goodness directed toward those who only deserve punishment. It's getting what you don't deserve, but in a good way. When I was about 19 years old, my uncle let me borrow his van to take my cousins Tom and Rachel to a movie over at the mall in Chesapeake, Virginia. And as we were headed toward the mall, um, we came up on this major intersection. It's like a five-lane road, you know, so there's two lanes going each direction. And there's right-hand turn lanes to turn right there. And in the right-hand turn lane, there was a car there that was stopped with its four ways on. And so I decided to just pass that car and make my right-hand turn from the driving lane, not from the turn lane. And, and the problem with that is that there was a police officer who saw me do it. And so he pulled me over and he gave me a ticket, which I deserved to get, right? I'd made an illegal right-hand turn. 
A few months later, I go to court, and while I'm there at court, I, I plead my case before the judge, but, but I really didn't have much of a case to plead because I was guilty. I had done something that was wrong. I knew it. The judge knew it. We all knew I was wrong, but as that happened, as that trial, it wasn't a trial, that hearing happened, the, the judge, for reasons that still don't make sense to me, dismissed the charges and told my little 19-year-old self that he never wanted to see me in his court again. That's grace. The judge knew I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. I deserved the fine. I deserved the points on my driving record. But instead, he gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me a dismissal. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And chapter 1 of Ephesus is, or of Ephesians is telling us that God didn't just give us grace. He poured it out on us. Our sin deserves wrath. Our sin deserves punishment. But chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that we get redemption and forgiveness instead. It says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And verse 8 is going to continue on to tell us that he lavished that grace on us. He doesn't just give us a, a little bit of grace. He gives us so much we can't handle it. He overwhelms us with his grace. And in pouring out his grace on us, it changes who we are. We obtain an inheritance as God's sons. We receive the Holy Spirit. God's grace on us changes who we are. But that's not all that God has done. As the letter continues and moves into chapter 2, we see that God also brings us from death to life. We were dead in our sin. We walked around as dead men, following the dead ways of this world. As dead men walking, we were headed for wrath. But then we come to chapter 2. And in verses 4 and 5, we're told, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, I'm going to preach that sermon in more detail when we get to it. That's awesome stuff right there. But what we're seeing here is that God made us alive. We couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't get ourselves out of our state of death. He did it for us. He saved us. He brought us back to life. And look at the means by which he did it. Did you notice that? How did he bring us to life? By grace. By grace you have been saved. As we keep reading in chapter 2, we're going to see that grace saves us and brings us back to life, but it also unites us together. And it's God that did that as well. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul tells us that these, he's, he's telling us as, as Gentile Christians, he's telling these Gentile Christians there in Ephesus that they are united to Israel that they are united into God's family, into God's chosen people through the blood of Christ. 
Now, here's the thing. Today, in 2022, we are very comfortable to stand around as Christians and say, we are God's people. But do you recognize how novel that would have been to the Christians in Ephesus? Before Jesus, the Gentiles had no access to the Father. They weren't inside the covenant. They weren't separated from, they were separated and alienated from God. But God did something about that. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul tells us, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He tells us that we've been brought into God's family. So, so that, according to verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So God united us to each other in Christ, and he brought us into his family. But even at the end of chapter 2, we haven't exhausted all that God has accomplished. There's still more to be done. And we see that as we move into chapter 3. There we're going to see that God has revealed a mystery that has been hidden in the past. Now, when we talk about a mystery in the New Testament, that, that word isn't meant exactly the same way we would use it today. In the New Testament, mystery doesn't mean something that we try to figure out on our own. It means something that's impossible to figure out until God shows us what that is. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we already know that as we come to chapter 3. That's what we were just talking about in chapter 2, right? We've already been talking about this. So why is this important? It's important because it reminds us that we are not an afterthought to God. It reminds us that God didn't forget about us. It wasn't like he was up in heaven and he looks down to earth and he sees all these Gentiles, all these non-Jewish people, and he's like, oh my goodness, I forgot to save them. How am I going to save them? What am I going to do? I know, I'll send my son. That's not what happened. We have been part of God's plan for salvation from the very beginning it was known to God, but it wasn't known to us. That's the mystery. But now God has made it known to us. God has revealed what his will, what his plan for salvation has been all along. And as that plan is revealed, it displays his wisdom. As he builds this new family that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, who come together, united in Christ Jesus into this new thing that we're going to call the church, God's wisdom is put on display through us. That's what God has done. Our identity comes from what God has done. So what has God done? In the first three chapters of the book, we see that he's blessed us with his grace. He's brought us from death to life. He's united us to each other. He's made us part of his family. He's revealed his gospel to us. He's displayed his wisdom through us. That's what he's done. 
and our identity, it comes out of that. Who we are, it comes out of that. So what does that mean about our identity? It means that we are blessed by grace, that we are alive in Christ, that we are united with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are part of God's family, that we are conveyors of the message of the gospel. That's our identity. That's who we are. And all of it is a result of what God has done. He did all the work. We did none of it. But remember, I told you that our identity in Christ determines how we live. So if that's who we are, if that's our identity, then how do we live? That question is answered in the second half of the book. That question is answered in chapters 4 through 6. In the second half of this book, we're going to see that what God has done directs how we live. And all of that is set in motion by chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I feel like it's been a while since I've said this, but, but remember, what do we do whenever we encounter that word, therefore, in the text? We ask the question, the really corny, cheesy, nerdy, Sunday school back in the 70s question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Why do we ask that? Because when we see a therefore in the text, it's telling us, look backward, because what has come before is influencing what follows. Therefore, right here, is pointing out that in light of everything covered in chapters one through three, in light of who we are because of what God has done, we are going to do what comes next. Paul is, is basically saying, because of all that was covered in the first half of my letter, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this metaphor of walking is the theme of the second half of the book. It's a metaphor for how we live. Have you ever been able to identify somebody because of how they walk? You know, like when they're a long way away and you know who that person is because of the way they carry themselves? I'll never forget my very first gunner in VFA 41. The gunner is a, uh, he's a warrant officer. He's usually a very senior enlisted guy who has become an officer and, and always old. But anyway, my very first gunner was a guy by the name of Steve Varga. Um, gunner Varga was an old, salty warrant officer. He, he was the best gunner in the Navy. And if you don't believe me, ask him. He'll tell you that. Um, but, but Gunner Varga was awesome. He was a great guy. Love him to death. I'm actually hoping he's going to be here in the fall. I'm hoping he'll be here. So don't tell him I used him as an example. But, but, but Gunner Varga had a very distinct walk. Like, I could be strapped into the jet, tied down on the fantail of the ship, and I could look forward, and he could be all the way up on the bow of the aircraft carrier, and I would know that it was Gunner Varga, even if he had, like, his face mask and goggles on because of the way he just kind of stomped across the flight deck, right? Like, he had a very distinct walk. He walked like a guy who had been carrying bombs around aircraft since World War II. He walked like a guy who had been sailing with Noah, he walked like a salty old warrant officer. 
And what Paul is going to be telling us here is that as Christians, we're going to walk, we're going to live in such a way that people can say, that guy's a follower of Jesus. That's what we're going to see here. What God has done directs how we live. And as Paul outlines this, he covers just about every aspect of our lives. So in the first half of chapter four, Paul is going to talk about the church. And the main thrust of his command is that as Christians in the church, we live in unity. In verses four through six there in chapter four, he highlights the unity that we should live in as he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What word does he say over and over and over and over again there? One. This is about unity. God has made the church a family that should walk in unity so that we can grow in our love for God and for each other and for other people. Now, like every family, and we'll cover this when we get to that section, there are different people. And God has gifted the different people in the family in different ways. But all of us are necessary. All of us are required to make our church family a family. Now, some of us might be a little bit strange. If you don't know who the strange person is in our church family, it's probably you. But we are a family, and each one of us is necessary. And our shared faith in Christ unites us together to pursue Christ, to pursue Christ-likeness, to pursue the mission he's given us as a church. So as a church, we walk, we live in unity. But beginning in the second half of chapter 4 and then going about two-thirds of the way through chapter 5, Paul is then going to shift and talk about the individual. How do we live individually as Christians? Because of what Paul has done, Paul is going to tell us that we live in holiness. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He'll expound on that in the verses that follow. And then we get to verses 22 through 24, and he's going to tell us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we recognize what God has done, when we see how God has given us a new identity, it leads us to change how we live. When you become a Christian, you're not the same person anymore. You're a new creation. You no longer live for yourself. You live like Christ. You live for Christ. You live, you walk in holiness. And as we keep on moving through chapter 5, we're going to see that our new identity in Christ also impacts our family lives. In our families, we live in God's design. God has designed and ordered the family for our good so that the family will flourish, so that the community will flourish, so that God will be glorified and we should strive to live in that design. 
So as we come to chapter 5, verse 22, we're going to see wives called to submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. And in verse 24, we're going to see husbands given the greater call to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As we come to chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to see children called to obey your parents in the Lord. And in chapter 6, verse 4, we're going to see fathers called to raise their children up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. What we're going to be seeing is that our identity in Christ leads us to have families that thrive. Families that follow the Lord. Families that reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church as we live in the way that God has designed us as families to live. Now, I know, and, and, and I don't really even have time to exegete this whole section right now, but, but I know that we live in a world where what God calls us into, that's countercultural. What we will see in this section on the family is radically different than what our world would commend. But I can also tell you that when we get there and, and you see this message and how beautiful and life-giving it is, you're going to be encouraged. Listen, I, I told people I was preaching Ephesians and, and I was talking to some of the guys who I might have also help with this and, and all of them are like, you're not giving me chapter five, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not afraid of chapter five. I'm excited about it. It gives us such a great picture of how God has designed the family for our good and his glory. But for the family, what God has called us into, what God has done in us, it leads us to live in his design. From the family, Paul will move on to the master and slave relationship. And those will roughly equivalent to our, or, or, or equate to our work life. And what we're going to see there in the middle of chapter six is that our work in, in our work life and just like in our family life and our personal life, we should all be living in the will of God. Our vocations are meant to glorify God. Whatever your vocation is, not just pastors. Whatever your vocation is, whether you're a mechanic or a plumber, whether you're a teacher or a firefighter, it doesn't matter what your vocation is. In your vocation, you should glorify God. So whether you're an employee or an employer or both, in those roles, we walk, we live in the will of God. And then finally, we'll come to the end of the letter. And at the very end of this letter, in, in chapter 6, we're going to see that, that as Christians, because of what God has done, spiritually, we walk in the armor of God. As Christians, we walk in the armor of God. There in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As we walk spiritually, as we walk as Christians, we don't walk in fear. We don't walk around wondering, how is the devil going to attack me today? No, we walk in boldness. We suit up, we put on the armor of God and we get ready to go to war. Because the truth is, you don't put on armor unless there's a battle to fight. 
And we're going to see that at the end of this book. So we suit up. We get out there and we engage in the mission. The work that God has done leads us to walk in spiritual armor. And in that armor, we deploy to live the mission that God has called us into, each and every one of us. What God has done directs how we live. In the church, we live in unity. Individually, we live in holiness. As families, we live in God's design. As workers, we live in the will of God. And as Christians, we live in the armor of God. That's the message of the second half of the book of Ephesians. Listen, I love this book. Like, I love this book. And as you get to know this book, I hope that you are going to grow to love it too. But today, as as we've been talking, this is just that taste on the spoon. We haven't even gotten into anything yet. Beginning next week, we're going to start feasting on this. And as we do, what you're going to see is that our identity comes from what God has done. And what God has done directs how we live. The message of the book of Ephesians is that our identity in Christ, it determines how we live. Our identity matters, and it drives what we do. So let's take hold of this together. Let's live in Christ together, and let's get out there and live the mission. That's what Ephesians is going to teach us. And I am so very excited to go through this with you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.